So we gather once again to try and uh, wrap our heads around uh, the events of the day, the events of the day, not only the specific Chorban Beis Hamikdash, the first Beis Hamikdash and the second Beis Hamikdash, but as we're going to see, as we see, as we read together the uh, the kinos, which we're going to uh, see this morning, uh, it's really a, uh, a a tour, as it were, of Jewish history, but not the bright side of Jewish history, the very tragic side of uh, Jewish history, with all of the uh, the tragedies and the suffering and the things which uh, we've endured over the course of this uh, this long uh, exile, and we're going to see that the uh, that uh, the leaders of, uh, of Klai Yisrael for generations have pieced together, have linked together all the different tragedies which have occurred, all of them ultimately are traced to Chorban Beis HaMikdash. As we talk about that, it's the detachment, it's the fact that Hashem Baruch Hu left and we are on our own, that leaves us now vulnerable to all sorts of attacks. Uh, and it's something which uh, we've uh, sadly had to endure for many generations. And we have Kinos, as we, as we know, all the way through the, uh, the Holocaust, and there are those who uh, write in keynotes, I don't think they've been accepted yet, but the various keynotes for uh, terrorist activities which take place in Israel to this, uh, to this very day. Because ultimately everything is traced back to Korban Beis HaMikdash. So we're going to see as we do just a couple, not a few, but a few keynotes here and there uh, to try and get a broad sense of what uh, we're supposed to be thinking about, what the focus of the day is to be able to hopefully e- experience the real depth of the tragedy of Korban Beis Hamikdash, and to be able to uh, come out yearning in a sense for uh, for much uh, for a speedy return of the uh, of the Beis Hamikdash, but in order to be able to experience that, Chazal tell us that the first thing we need to do is we need to be able to be misado. You need to be able to mourn and be able to feel the loss before we could go ahead and become uh, be, be able to feel the the exhilaration in the joy of having a Beis Hamikdash, which is which is returned. So we begin, the first kina which we're going to say this morning is kina vav, first one that should, uh, should be there. And this kina, kina contains so many elements of trauma that it almost reads like a trauma manual. It begins with the word shavas. This could mean everything came to a standstill or that our joy ceased. Either way, it's the hallmark of trauma. Life under normal conditions just sorts of, just sorts of moves along with the passage of time, when a traumatic event occurs, everything stops. It feels as though time in life comes to a screeching halt. Trauma overwhelms the nervous system and leaves one feeling as though they are in danger, constantly. One who feels threatened does not have the luxury of being able to experience joy. Joy is a privilege to experience and trauma victims cannot relax enough to be able to experience any joy whatsoever. Another major component of trauma is the isolation that it engenders. A victim on his own feels attached from from everyone and everything. They feel that their experience has made the world and people too scary to connect with. They often isolate themselves and withdraw from family and loved ones. Even more devastating is when a victim does does seek out help and assistance and is turned away. The re-traumatization, the rejection, when the already vulnerable trauma victim makes himself more vulnerable, is devastating and reinforces the victim's distorted perception that something is wrong with them. This is captured so succinctly in this keynote when we read, Karasi the Mahavai, I called out to my friends, but Hema Rimuni, but they deceived me. 
So at the time that we were so vulnerable and we were looking for assistance from those who we thought would be able to assist and provide us assistance and would be interested in assisting us, they turned their backs on us and instead they went ahead and they taunted us. In times of distress and danger and vulnerability, we reach out to those with whom we are connected. They're the ones who should provide us with help and support and love and empathy. And when those quote-unquote friends or relatives turn on us or deceive us, we feel violated and the trauma goes deeper into our nervous system. The roots get stronger and reinforces the belief that something is wrong with us. Lastly, we read Tashiv Lahem Gemul, repay them for their wickedness. One important element of healing from trauma is inflicted by a person is justice. If the perpetrator gets away with it, it means it was okay. We seek justice not to punish, but it confirms that the victim was victimized and what happened was wrong and unjust. Simply trying to put it in the past doesn't work. The trauma victim has to be able to experience a sense of justice in order to be able to fully heal and to move on. Shabbos, Surmani. Next, Kina, Kina Zion. So when you look at this Kina, the first thing that stands out is that each stanza begins with the word Eicha, which will translate as, how could you? It's an expression of total and utter disbelief. How could you, Hashem, of all people, do this to us? We don't direct our anger or astonishment at the actual enemies who killed and tortured Klaiso, or those who destroyed the Beis HaMikdash and sent us into exile. We direct this question directly to Hashem, Eicha, how could you do this? An essential element of our disbelief is that Hashem has been so loving towards us that it becomes inconceivable that he would now turn his back on us and allow us to endure the suffering that we've had to endure. Not only did Hashem allow this to occur, but the opening question is, how did you rush in your anger? You didn't just let this happen. You rushed in your anger to do this to us. How? How could you betray us? Trauma is always bad. But when one is traumatized by someone who is supposed to love and protect you, the trauma runs deeper and is more devastating. That is the emotion that is being captured in this kina. Eicha atza. Not only could it happen, but how could you, Hashem, have been the one to rush to inflict this upon us? When traumatized by one's caretaker, it is more devastating because of our attachment figure. The one whom we are supposed to attach and the one who is supposed to keep us safe has betrayed us and hurt us. It's not the physical pain, it's the emotional scar that is so painful and raw. Part of the disbelief expressed in this kina is the bewilderment that Hashem has behaved in what seems to us irrationally against us. It is so utterly out of character that we can't make sense out of what happened. That inability to make sense out of and to grasp what happened is what intensifies our pain and leave us, leaves us feeling unsafe and insecure. If we can't trust and rely on Hashem, there is no safety in the world. In utter despair and disbelief, the Kina concludes with the phrase, We will bitterly shedding tears like water. There is nothing we can do but cry because we are so devastated by what has occurred and by the, what seems to be the betrayal of Hashem against us. The next Kina that we read is Kina Yud base. And when you look at the structure of this uh, Kina, you'll notice that each stanza is comprised of three parts. 
The first part begins with the word ohali, meaning my tent, and obviously is a reference to the Beis HaMikdash. The second line begins with the phrase, Lama Lanetzach, why is it forever? It's an expression of disbelief over the fact that our, from our perspective, the state of Chorban and Golos is forever. We haven't known anything different than, uh, than Golos in Chorban, and that seems to be, it's, we don't see a, uh, an outcome. We don't see a, a, anything changes, sadly, anytime soon. We may know that there will be a Gula, but in the moment, it seems like it has been forever. And the end of each stanza concludes with the word Po, which means here. And each concluding phrase expresses further bewilderment about our current state of being. What's interesting about this kina is the use of the term ohali to, to reference the Beis HaMikdash. Why not use the term Mikdash or bias or one of the more used terms? Why utilize this reference of ohali, which is reminiscent of the Mishkan, the traveling sanctuary that was utilized in the Midbar and until the time of Shom HaMelech when the Beis HaMikdash was finally constructed? Grief for a loved one who passed away is felt more strongly as one is reminded of their absence because one expects them to be present. On a Shabbos or a Yontif or at a family Simcha, one feels a loss that, of that relative more than any other times. In that context of attachment, the same phenomena occurs. We experience the absence of attachment more profoundly when we seek to attach than other times. As we contemplate our current state of existence and seek to reestablish the Vekas in attachment to Hashem, we realize that exile and Chorban seem to be continuing forever. Lama Lanetzach, we keep asking, why is this going on forever? As we think about the matter further, we realize that even the place where we are, po, here and now, should be a place where we can connect to Hashem. We have in our national history experience connecting to Hashem without a Beis HaMikdash, and without living in Eretz Yisrael. That occurred when we had a Mishkan, known as the Ol Moed. It was a tent of meeting, a temporary place to connect with Hashem. And therefore, in this moment, when we're feeling the lack of attachment to HaKadosh Baruch Hu most strongly, and all of our attention is focusing on that in seeking ways to reattach with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so that this time that we're seeking that connection from our current place, we yearn for Ohali. We specifically want the tent, the movable sanctuary of Hashem, where Hashem can be found anywhere, not specifically in Eretz Yisrael, not specifically in Yushalayim, but even in a Midbar, even in Skokie, even in the United States of America, even just a temporary place, one that isn't permanent, to be able to nonetheless connect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Ohali, I asked you to, uh, to open up the uh, page with the sources. So this kina actually recounts incidents that occurred around the time of the Chorban of the second Beis HaMikdash. The bulk of the kina tells the story of Titus and what he did when he came to destroy the Beis HaMikdash. So let's say over there it should be on the top of page one of your source sheets. The passage of the Gemara in Gittin reads, Azal Shadri Letitus. So eventually, Titus was, uh, was sent to go uh, to be the one who was going to destroy Yushalayim, destroy the Beis HaMikdash. Vamar, and Titus wasn't just a mighty warrior, wasn't just a capable general, but he was somebody who completely rejected the notion of the existence of God. Vamar, and he says, Where is the God, the rock, the one who is going to protect them? 
Ze Titus HaRasha. This is a reference to Titus, the, the wicked Titus. Shechira Vigidev Klape Mala, who blasphemed and cursed towards HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Ma'asa. So what was this heinous crime which he went ahead and he did on top of destroying the base of Mikdash? We understand that he did that. But what made the, his behavior in the destruction of the base of Mikdash so, so, uh, so inconceivable? Tafa Zona Biyado, he went ahead and he grabbed the prostitute. Vinichnas the base Kodesh And he goes into the Kodesh Kedashim. Kodesh Kedashim, as we know, is a place where only the Kohen Gadol would go in only on Yom Kippur, when he was in the highest state of Tahara, the highest state, highest state of purity, and nobody else was allowed to go in, even the Kohen Gadol. And here, Titus goes in, into the Kodesh Kadashim with a zona. Not only that, Vitsiya Sefer Torah, he spreads out a Sefer Torah, Va'avar Aleh Avera, and he behaves as one would with a zona on a Sefer Torah in the Kodesh Kadashim. You can't get more blasphemous than that. Then after he finished that, Venatal Saif, he took a sword, Vigideresa Parochas, and he went ahead and he stabbed the Parochas, the curtain which separates between the Kodesh Kadashim and the rest of the Besamitosh. Venasanes, in a miracle occurred. Why exactly Hashem performed this miracle? We could explore, but the miracle occurred, and the Parochas began to bleed. And when Tita sees that the Parochas is bleeding, Kasavra is an idolater, he says. He must have killed God. He actually stabbed God, and it's God who's bleeding. There's nobody inside of the, of the curtain, so obviously that must be God. Shenemra says, that they went ahead and they, your enemies went ahead and roared in the midst of your, uh, in your, uh, your place of meeting, and they established true signs. And Abachanan uh, Omer, Abachanan quotes a different passage. Micha mocha chasinya. What does that pasuk mean? Micha mocha chasin v'akasha. Who is like you, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, who's strong and mighty? Shata shomea niutzav v'gidufo shoso rasha v'shosek. That you hear and you're witnessing the blasphemy of this wicked person Titus. What he did in the Kodesh Kadashim, in the Beis Hamikdash, in the Kodesh Kadashim, and you, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, sort of play along with the charade. As if he was successful at killing you, how do you have the, the strength of character to go ahead and endure that type of blasphemy directed towards you? Another passage, who is like you amongst the mute, that you had no verbal response whatsoever. If anybody else went into the Kodesh Kodashim outside of Yom Kippur, it's, they, they subject themselves to, uh, to death in the hands of heaven. And here, Titus went ahead and defiled everything which is sacred in one moment. Ma'asa, so thinking that he went ahead and he had successfully killed God and that there was no uh, resistance that he was going to face anymore, he decided, as a Balgaiva would, as a haughty person is going to do, to be able to show off his success, he takes the parochas, the symbol that he actually killed God, and he went ahead and made it into a basket of sorts, made it into a, a peckle. He brought, gathered together all of the utensils, all the sacred utensils of the Beis Amitash, what the Jewish people had used for generations to worship God, to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And he went ahead and put it inside of the parochas, wrapped it inside of the parochas, and he went ahead and he put it onto a boat and he was going to go ahead and ship it by boat back 
to his hometown to be able to show off his successful campaign, what a great warrior he was, and the fact that he actually killed God. And then Gemara tells a story about those travels and how eventually Hakash Baruch Hu was able to exact revenge against Titus by killing him with a small gnat, a, a little bug, ultimately was the one that would brought the downfall of Titus. How uh, uh, ironic is that? But Titus, as opposed to others, which we'll read about in, in Kinos later on, Titus never repented, never felt any remorse whatsoever. Not only did he not feel remorse as he was dying, but he remained adamantly defiant. And he was so defiant, even as he's dying, that he was defiant in his afterlife. Kihavamayas, when he was about to die, Amarlu, he said to those around him, the Kalyua Lahu Gavra, that when I'm dead, go ahead and cremate my body, burn my body. And I want you to take my ashes and spread them out over the seven seas. Why does he want his ashes spread out over the seven seas? Because he was aware at this point that there is such a thing as a God. And if the God of the Jewish people can find me, he will bring me to justice. And I want to impede that process. I don't want to face that judgment. And just spread me out over the seven seas so that I should not have to experience judgment for all the things which, which I did. Now, the end of the Kina tells another incident. One, so the, the, the beginning of the Kina recounts this story of Titus going into the Beis Amikdash in poetic form, obviously. But then the end of it tells another story, one in which a boatload of Jewish children were kidnapped and were trafficked for horrific abuse. The children decided amongst themselves that it is, that their situation warrants suicide. Chazal present the, uh, the story as follows. I apologize that I didn't include this in the, in the source sheet. But the Gemara reads as follows. It's Gemara in Gitten Anun Zayin Amabes. It says, um, Tana, There was a story of 400 young boys and young girls, that they were kidnapped for humiliating uh, experiences, that they were, going to be, they were going to be abused. They were literally uh, sex trafficking. And they understood what was in store for them. They understood that when the boat arrives at port, what's going to be which every one, every one of them. And none of them wanted to be defiled, obviously. And they said, they asked the question um, between themselves. So they, didn't, they were willing to go ahead and throw themselves overboard in order to die and not have to be humiliated, not have to be abused. But they didn't want to do so if that would mean that they're sacrificing their olam haba. So they wondered amongst themselves, what's going to happen? Will we still get olam haba if we throw ourselves over? And the oldest of them said, And they went ahead and they quoted a pasuk from Tehillim. And they darshan it to mean that ashiv mitzulos yam. What does it mean that I will return them from the depth of the sea? Elu shetovim yam. That refers to those who drown at sea, drown in the depths of the sea. Kevin sheshamu yulados kach. And when the girls, the, the females on board, they heard this pasuk, that means Hashem those who died at sea. Kafsu kula v'leflotochayam. They said we are not allowing ourselves to be abused. They jump overboard and they drown at sea. Then the boys, seeing what the girls did, the boys said to themselves, Oh my, if the girls who this type of abuse is at least a normal manner of relations for them, and they refuse to be humiliated and demeaned by, uh, by being abused by uh, the Romans, 
So we, the boys, where this is not a natural manner of, of relations, all the more so is it demeaning and humiliating, and we should do the same. Mm-hmm. So they also jumped overboard and they drowned mm-hmm. at sea. In a reference to them, the Pasuk says, He says that we were killed all day and were considered like sheep being, being led to slaughter. And the final stanza of the Kina is a part, it reads particularly powerful. It reads as follows. You can look uh, ahead a little bit. As the depths were about to take their souls, although this has happened to us, we have not forgotten you. We do not forget you. And we dive in to the real one. So the only thing which is real that exists in the universe is HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. And despite what they were enduring, and despite what they were about to endure, and the fact that they killed themselves in order to avoid that, they never stopped davening to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They remained believers of HaKadosh Baruch Hu all along. They placed their hope to the one who promised to restore life from Bashan, meaning the depths of the sea. And this is not in the Gemara, but the Basko comes out and declares, awake, you Hashem, why do you sleep? The powerful message calling Hashem to awaken is striking. When we think about a Basko, it, it, it in general means, it's a means by which Hashem communicates and sends a message to us. This is how Hashem sends us a message in the absence of a Navi. We don't think of a Basko as calling out to Hashem. Where does the Basko get this notion from to call out to God, to instruct God? Does the Basko have its own thought and will or does it reflect our will? That I don't know. What is clear is that Hashem has not abandoned us. Despite what we've had to endure, despite the suffering which we've, uh, which we've uh, undergone, we see HaKadosh Baruch Hu from the perspective that he's sleeping. We hold on to that hope that if we could simply arouse him from his slumber, he will once again serve as our attachment figure and we, we will be protected, safe, and secure. Although we've said many times that uh, somebody who's experienced trauma uh, is unable to go ahead and tell their story, they can't consolidate memory to be able to piece together a story. Actually heard from somebody uh, this morning that asked me a, a voice note that they were listening to one of the, uh, the shurim that I gave before uh, Tishabab. And they said that, uh, that the, the description was exactly as they've experienced, that they can't put together the, the experiences which they had. They hope someday that somebody will be able to help them put it together. But they said they manish can't put together the story. There's just bits and pieces and uh, little parts of it which uh, stick out in their mind. But this Kina, in Kina Yitzayin, we actually retell some of the story of the Chorban. Again, not in a full narrative that we would expect in a, in, in a, in a book, but it does focus on the horrible tragedies and inhumanity that happened by the destruction of the first Beis Hamikdash. Thus, for example, we read, If women would eat their own offspring, Compassionate women cook their children. And women would say to one another, Come and let us cook our screaming children. 
you'll notice it's unimaginable that uh, that a parent could do that, that a mother could go ahead and do that, that they could be some so inhuman and so depraved that they would actually talk about this, even if it's something which one would do in the privacy of their own home. To get together with another person and say, let's go ahead and do this together is something which is inconceivable. Now you'll notice that the stanzas in this kina are short and each one ends with the phrase, alalai woe is to me. Trauma victims don't have the capacity to retell their trauma story. When event trauma strikes, meaning the, uh, uh, an event which puts a life at, in direct risk and immediate risk, and the brain detects the threat and potential danger, the thinking part of the brain goes offline. And that includes a part of the brain that organizes and consolidates memory. Thus, a trauma victim can only recount bits and pieces of their story if there is any recall at all. This kina depicts that incredibly accurately. The horrific accounts of unimaginable and inhumane behavior is shocking. How could mothers cook and eat their own children? How could they do it together? Weren't they ashamed and horrified by their depravity? The answer is that no one can predict the dysfunctional behavior that results from trauma. We judge and think about other things with our own, with our non-trauma brain and delude ourselves into thinking that we would never behave that way. But truthfully and honestly, we have no way of knowing. The women referenced in this, in this kina were also Rachmanios. They're characterized as compassionate women. But when one experiences the horrors of trauma, there is no way to predict how one would react. And there are no grounds for judging a victim's dysfunctional behavior. Sadly, many people do judge them. And in doing so, they inflict even more pain on the, uh, on the victims. The next kina, which, uh, which we say, presents a, power, a powerful contrast. The theme is a contrast between the closeness of the Jewish people in the Beis HaMikdash Tashem and the separation and attachment that resulted from Chorba. Another element of the kina is the Chil Hashem, desecration of Hashem's name that Chorba Beis HaMikdash causes. At the outset of the kina, we read, You said, you Hashem said, I will do good with you. So that's a promise from God that he's going to take care of us. And yet, uh, and that your people, I will always be distinguished. That you and I are going to have a special and unique relationship. And therefore, being that you have this assurance, you gave us multiple assurances of the unique relationship and the close relationship that we would have, so, so why is it that wicked people profane your name? And you did not pour out your wrath on them. We often think of Churban and Golis in terms of the impact it has on us. And we overlook the impact it has on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Chil Hashem, however, is one of the devastating consequences of Churban Mesamikdash. The purpose of creation was for the world to recognize Hashem's presence in this world. On Yom Noran, we daven in every Amida that the world should come to recognize in Hashem as the king over everything. When the Beis Amitash is destroyed in Klai Yisrael, Hashem's ambassadors to the world are tortured, killed, and exiled. In Hashem's house in the physical world, the Beis Amitash is destroyed. It generates a chil Hashem of unimaginable proportions in the sense that the world moves away from recognition of Hashem rather than towards it. 
like we saw in the story with Titus, that he actually had the audacity to think that he had conquered Hashem, that he had killed Hashem. So that capacity to be able to think that you actually killed Hashem is the greatest chil Hashem, is the greatest desecration of Hashem's name, which could possibly be, a, be imagined. And this is truly one of the great tragedies of Chorba Beis Hamikdash, the desecration that happened to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The contrast between love and affection that Hashem promised in our current condition is incomprehensible to us. As we mentioned, any trauma is devastating. When it's inflicted by someone who's supposed to be our loving caregiver, the pain deepens and makes it more difficult to process. At the end of the kina, however, it contains an important declaration of faith. Although Hashem's behavior towards us is incomprehensible, we still recognize and acknowledge that He is righteous and we have no complaints. Therefore, we declare, and you are righteous over uh, uh, everything that has happened. And to you, Hashem is righteousness, and we will declare your righteousness with love. The next kina which we read is the kina Chaf Aleph. And here, the kina begins to change our focus from Churban Beis Hamikdash, from the events surrounding and related to the, uh, the destruction of Beis Hamikdash itself, to the ramifications and resulting trauma and subsequent trauma. Churban Beis Hamikdash, as we've been saying, is event trauma. It's a one-time event where there was horrific killing and torture and detachment from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And we felt that the life of the Jewish people was at risk and we, uh, we, 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 we feared that we may not survive. Following the Churban, we went into Gullus, we go into exile. And while in Gullus, we endure more and more traumas. The different traumas impact us in different ways, but they combine creating a national complex trauma. Complex trauma in the sense that it's continuous trauma happening one event after another. The kina that we read revolves around the Asara Haruge Malchus, the 10 martyrs. Why is the death of the Asara Haruge Malchus so tragic? Besides the fact that they were killed in horrific fashion, but there's a reason they're grouped together in a single kina. And before we explore why they're grouped together, so you have on the source sheet over there, you have, uh, we have a couple of the stories from Chazal about the revolving around the, their death to see just how tragic exactly the, uh, the events were and what we're uh, focusing our attention on. So the first one is the Gemara Brachos, where it has the, uh, the story of Rebbe Kiva's death. Now you have to remember that Rebbe Kiva is considered the father of Torah Shabbat Peh. Up until the time of Rebbe Kiva, so Torah Shabbat Peh was certainly known to everybody, but it wasn't organized in any sort of fashion. It was sort of just random halachas here and there, which everybody knew, the Tanaim knew about, but it wasn't organized by, uh, by topic. But Akiva came along and said, it's too hard to remember just with seemingly random, trivial facts. We need to go ahead and start organizing them. And he began to, in his time, they began to organize things. So we know there's 39 malachas, they followed the Sidra the Pas, they followed the order of making bread, and all of those things which make it easier to conceptualize and easier to group things together. So Rabbi Kiva was responsible for that. So he's a major figure as far as in terms of the same way Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who represents Torah Shabbat Saab. So Rabbi Kiva is the one who represents Torah Shabbat Peh. So Bishasha Utsiyos Rabbi Kiva Lahariga. 
So at the time that Rabbi Kiva was being taken out to be executed, Zman Kriyashma Haya. So it was the time for Kriyashma. It was in the morning time to say Kriyashma. And just to make Rabbi Kiva feel more in pain, in order to inflict more pain upon him, so they were combing his flesh with iron combs. In seemingly oblivious to everything which is going on around him, he is in the middle of reciting Kriyashma. So the Talmidim, I don't know why they thought it was appropriate to interrupt him if he's so engaged in Kriyashma at that time, but they go ahead and they say, Rabbeinu, they say, Rabbi, Adkan, they say, even now, at this moment, when they're torturing you and they're killing you, you can accept upon yourself, O Malchus you're accepting upon yourself the yoke of heaven now? Amr Lahem, to which Rabbi Kiva says, of course. My entire life, I was, Mitzvah here doesn't mean troubled, but I was looking to figure out how am I going to manifest within myself, within my own behavior, this particular pasuk, the intent of this pasuk. What pasuk? B'chol pasuk which says you're supposed to love Hashem with all of your soul. That means that you have to express love to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even at the time that your soul is being taken away from you. Amarti, so I said, all my life, since I became from, I've been wondering when am I going to have the opportunity to be able to demonstrate to Hashem that I love Him even as I'm losing my life. Now that the opportunity presents itself to me, I've been waiting for this for 80 years, so you don't expect me to go ahead and finally carry it out. And Rabbi Kiva went ahead and he extended his recitation of the word Echad, the declaration that God is one, until he actually, his soul departed from him, it left his body in the midst of his recitation of the word Echad. In Yotza Basko Varma, here's the Basko again. A Basko comes out and declares, Ashrech Rebikiva. How fortunate are you, Rebikiva? Shiyotza Nishmasa Be'echad, that your soul departed your body as you were declaring Hashem's oneness. So as you're bringing together, you're being Ma'achid Hashem. So is at that time that the, you actually experience a separation of body and soul. It was actually a period which happens at the time of Echad. Amr Malachi Asharis Baruch and the Malachi Hasharis, who should be very close to understanding God's ways, because they're spiritual beings much more so than we humans, but even they found this incident, they found this story completely inconceivable. It, it, it bewildered them. Zu Torah, Zu This is the, somebody who represents Torah Shabal Peh. He was responsible for the Talmudim who are going to carry on Torah for future generations. And this is his reward. This is his end. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it, it's inconceivable. Skipping the pasuk, Amar lehem. So, so Kadosh Baruch Hu says to the Malachim, "Chelkam b'chayim." That his life is uh, his his portion is with the living. And Yasa Basko v'Amar, and then a Basko comes out and says, "Ashrech Rebbe Kiva she'atam mezuman l'chayolam haba." That how fortunate are you, Rebbe Kiva, that you are invited immediately into Olam Haba. But this is how they went ahead and they tortured Rebbe Kiva to kill him. And then we have the next uh, passage over there is the story of Rebchanin ben Tradion from the Gemara in Avodah Zarah, where it's, it's more graphic the description of his death. And again, whatever crime he uh, committed is not so important. Asyul Rebchanin ben Tradion, they brought out Rebchanin ben Tradion, Amrulay, and they said, Amai Kasak de Baraisa. They said, What were you doing? You know, we outlawed the study of Torah. And not only did we outlaw the study of Torah, we outlawed the teaching of Torah. And you uh, publicly violated that. Like, what were you thinking? 
and he said, what do you want from me? My my uh, my plead is God commanded me to study Torah, to teach Torah. I, I'm listening to God, I'm not listening to you. So they immediately uh, uh, issued a verdict that he is going to be executed by burning, while Ishtol Ariga, his wife, is going to be beheaded. Albito Leshe Bekuva Shalzonas, and his daughter is going to be sentenced to a life in a, uh, uh, a, a house of ill repute, the house of uh, prostitution. I love the Sreifa, Shayahoga. Okay. Now we say, so the, eventually they were taken out. Now the Gemara goes back a little bit and says that after after Chani ben Tradio went ahead and gave smicha to a number of his students in hiding because he was hoping that they would not uh, that they wouldn't be discovered. So he was found. He was incapable of escaping and he was found. So Yosef Oshig Betor Umakil Kilos Barabim in teaching Torah. The Sefer Torah Munach Lo and he was holding a Sefer Torah in his lap as he was caught by the by the authorities by the Romans. If you ukarhu b'sefer Torah, so to punish him for this heinous crime of being engaged of Torah study, so they brought him and they wrapped him in a sefer Torah. Muros, and they went ahead and they surrounded him with twigs and branches. or and they lit a fire around him. So they're going to burn him alive. That was his sentence. Mm-hmm. but having him burn alive, that wasn't enough for them. They said, you know what? We're going to make sure that this takes a really long time. We're going to slow this down. So they brought in sponges of wool, which they soaked in water. And they placed them on his heart. So he should not die quickly. They wanted him to suffer. They wanted him to experience as much pain as they could possibly inflict on him. And his daughter said to him, I have to see you suffering like this. This is unimaginable to me that I have to see you suffering like this. Amrla, to which Rebchanid ben Tradi, again, the presence of mind in this moment is something which is astonishing. But he says, He says, listen, if they went ahead and they killed me by myself, meaning without the Sefer Torah wrapped around me, so then I would also be pretty disturbed by this. It would be upsetting to me if I was killed all by myself. But but now that they're killing me together at the same time, they're burning a Sefer Torah. So I and the Sefer Torah are being destroyed together. The one who's going to seek out revenge for the insult which was done to the Sefer Torah by burning the Sefer Torah. So that same one, meaning Hashem, will also seek out revenge and justice for my insult, for my, my humiliation and my death. The Talmidim said, Rabbi, Mata Roa. They said, Listen, you're having this near death experience because you're just about to die. So, what are you seeing now around you? What's happening around you? Amrlahem. So, he said, I'll tell you exactly what I see. Gilion Nisrafim. I see the parchment, the physical parchment of the Sefer Torah that is actually on fire and it's burning up and there'll be none of it left. But the Osios Porchos, but the letters are miraculously jumping off of the parchment and they are floating up to heaven. And therefore, they ultimately are not actually destroying the Sefer Torah. The physical part of the Sefer Torah, they may be capable of, of destroying, but the neshama of the Sefer Torah, the soul of the Torah, that they cannot harm in any way because it's, it's not something which is physical and it's outside of their grasp. Then the students say, listen, you're about to die. There's fire around you. Eventually, it's going to kill you. Why don't you just open up your mouth? Let the Torah enter into your mouth, into your internal organs, and that way you'll die faster. 
what? Let the fire enter into their uh, into his in, into him. Sorry, into his internal organs, and uh, that way you'll die faster. Armelahem to which of Chanina ben Tradion said, "No, mutav that the one who gave me life, he's the one who's going to take my life, and I'm not going to do anything." Even in the face of this continued suffering, I'm not going to do anything which is going to uh, bring my hasten my death. Come here. At that point, Amrlo calls to Niri, the executioner, the one who was responsible for lighting the fire. He had the lighter fluid, brought all of the wood and all of that. So he turns, he says, Rebbe, he's killing this person, but he refers to him as his Rebbe. All of a sudden, he's his Rebbe. Even the Marbebe shall have it. So no tell Sfugim shall Malibcha. Listen, if I go ahead and I turn up the fire and I remove the sponges that are on your heart, which are keeping you alive longer and causing you to suffer more. Can you assure that you will bring me into the world to come? said, yeah, I can do that. I, got the, I, I have that kind of pull. He shoveled. The executioner said, how do I know you're telling the truth? Maybe take an oath if you swear to me that that's what you're going to do. So then I'll be pinky swear. So So he went ahead and he swore. He gave a shua. And at that point, the executioner turns up the flames and pulls off the sponges on his heart. And Reb Chanina ben Trajan died as a result much faster. In seeing this, the executioner himself dives into the fire. He himself kills himself. And again, the Basco comes out and declares, not only is Rabbi Chanina ben Tradion invited into the world to come, but the executioner that Rabbi Chanina ben Tradion promised he'll bring him into the world to come, he also came. And when Rabbi, Rabbi Yudah Nasi, the one who's responsible for editing the Mishnayis, after Rabbi Kiva, the one who's responsible for Torah Shabbat, Shabbat Peh, when he hears about this story, so he expresses the following. There are some people like the executioner who merit their portion in the world to come in a moment, in just one moment decision, he decided he's going to go ahead and help Rav Chanin ben Tradion by allowing him to die faster. And with that, he gets into Olam Haba. And for others, it takes an entire lifetime in order to be able to earn a similar type of spot in the world to come. At Maimon Har Sinai, when the Jewish people miscalculated and thought that Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't returning, they panicked. Certain that they would not, could not survive without a leader, they sought a replacement for Moshe Rabbeinu. That was the Egel Hazav. Obviously, they were mistaken in choosing an inanimate object to replace Moshe, but the recognition that they needed a, late, a leader was on target and correct. While the Beis Amikdash stands, Klai Yisrael has direct dveikus with Hashem. Following the Chorban, that dveikus was severed, and they needed something to grasp on to retain their connection with Hashem. May not be a direct connection, but even indirect is something that they, really, they were willing to grasp at. The ten Tanaim whose deaths are described in this kina were the conduit that connected Kal Yisrael with Hashem. They were the bridge that allowed somewhat of a dveikus with Hashem, even in the absence of a Beis Amikdash, and perhaps even in the absence of living in, in Eretz Yisrael. But with their deaths, Chayisar was dealt another tragic blow. We now experience another degree of trauma. If Chorbe Samitash wasn't enough, they now face an additional blow reinforcing the notion that Hashem has abandoned them altogether because they no longer have the leaders which represented God in his Torah to be able to connect 
to, to be able to connect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu through. These leaders directed in Tarkha to conduct themselves in Gullus, a new circumstance for which there was no Mesorah. While they were alive, Klayusah could contain some sense of connection. Their death in this context was Khurb, of Khurban was a tragedy of unimaginable proportions. Puts into poetry another story which is recounted in the Gemara and Gitin, and it's also on your source sheets over here. This is also Gemara and Gitin on Nun Chesam Ralph. It says, Amrav Yudah Marav, Maisa Bibno Ubibito Sherbishwa Ben Elisha, Shenishbu Lishne Adoni. So you have two children of Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, who is a Kohen Gadol, whose children, his son and his daughter, were captured by two different, uh, two different Romans. Two different, um, yeah, Romans. Liyamim. Now these two Romans, they met up in a bar one day. Ze'omer. And one of these, uh, these Romans, these slave owners says, I have a slave who's so handsome, you've never seen a person like him your entire life. Mamish, he could be a model and he could, uh, you know, be famous. Vizet Omer, the other Roman in the bar, says, Yeshi Shifcha, Shem Olam Kulo Kuyofya, I have a maidservant who is more beautiful than any woman you've seen in the world. You know what? We can make a business deal over here. Amru, Bo Venasiam Zelazeh, let's have them marry. Vinachalik Bevlados. And they'll produce, if a beautiful man, a beautiful woman have children together, they'll have the most beautiful offspring, and we'll be able to go ahead and sell them for a fortune of money, and we'll be rich. So they struck up a deal, they signed the contracts, my lawyer spoke to his lawyer, and they figured it all out. And they go ahead and they brought them into the room, the chas and the kala, into a room, and they said, you guys are now married, and now pronounce you man and wife, start producing babies. And ze yasha bekeren zavis, and each of the Karen Zavizeh, and this one, the boy, sat in his corner, Vizu Yashub Karen Zavizeh, and she, Rabbi Shwab and Alicia's daughter, sat in the opposite corner. And as each one is in the opposite corner of the room, what are they saying to themselves? Ze Omer, so the boy says to himself, the son says, Ani Kohen be Kohanim Gedolim. Listen, I'm a Kohen who's a descendant of Kohanim Gedolim. It's been in our family since Aaron Kohen. As a Shifcha, I should go ahead and I should marry a Shifcha. I could go ahead and marry a, a maidservant. This is something which I cannot do. It's way, as we will see, way beneath my dignity. In the other corner of the room, now we pan over to her side of the, her corner, Zosomeris, and what she's saying to herself, I'm a Bas Kohen from a family of Kohan Gedolim. And I'm going to go ahead and marry a slave? Nothing doing. This is not even a, a Shidduch resume I would even entertain. Ubachu Kola so each one knowing that there's no escape from where they are, and there's no escape from their circumstance, so each one spends the entire night in their respective corner crying. Once dawn arrives and some light enters into the room, so brother and sister recognize one another, and they realize that they're brother and sister. And they embrace with one another, and they let out such a deep emotional cry that the soul of both of them left them at that moment. And they both died at that moment. In a reference, and with these people in mind, this by the first place I make touch, but Hanavi went ahead and he lamented, because of these I cry, 
that my ears just flow with tears as he thinks about this this uh, this brother and sister, the children of Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha. And there's an important element of the story that I really want to highlight. As brother and sister were locked in a room, expected to produce children, each one moved to a separate corner and cried. The boy cried, and in the words of the Kina said, Nin Aaron, I'm a descendant of Aaron. Ech l'shivcha yehinosei, how could he, how could I go ahead and marry a maidservant? In the opposite corner, the girl expressed a similar sentiment. She says, not like the Gemara says, but she says, Bas Yocheved. She says, I'm a daughter of Yocheved. Ech l'evet how can I go ahead and marry a slave? What's remarkable here is the pride and dignity that each one possessed. They didn't express revulsion over the act or even the sin that they were expected to commit. That's not what they went ahead and articulated in terms of why they can't do this. It had nothing to do with the sin. What bothered them, not that they, it didn't bother them, what bothered them more was that they were descendants of a distinguished family and it was inconceivable for them to behave in a manner that would not reflect that dignity. This is what we've talked about the past Shabbos in terms of Kavad Abrius, the, uh, the, the uh, dignity and self-respect. They recognize their special value and self-worth and as a result, refuse to behave in a manner which would violate that in any way. Often our enemies are not satisfied with just killing Jews. They seek to humiliate us in the process as well. And many of the kinos contain this theme, how the generals and armies went out of their way to dehumanize us and strip us of all self-respect and dignity. One level of tragedy was the story of the Asura Malchus. But now we're introduced to regular, quote unquote, regular people. And we get to see how dignified they were and their tragic death becomes further magnified and pain, painful to read about. The next kina has nothing to do with Korban Beis HaMikdash. It was written after in response to the first crusades, three German cities, Worms, Spire, and Mainz were destroyed, and the Jewish communities were destroyed, and Jews were killed during the march of the crusades on their way to Israel. These tragedies occurred more than a thousand years after the Chorban of the second Beis Amikdash, and did not even take place on Tishabov. The Kina informs us that these cities were destroyed in the months of Iyar and Sivan. So the question obviously is, why then do we commemorate these tragedies on Tisha B'Av? Okay. The answer is found in the Kina itself. We read, And since we cannot add a day of mourning over destruction and burning, and we cannot even make the day of mourning earlier, when, for example, when Tisha B'Av falls on Shabbos, we don't observe it on a the Thursday or the Friday before, but we delay it. And I will eulogize and wail and cry with a bitter soul. The author of this particular uh, kina is teaching that all national tragedies are commemorated on Tisha B'av, regardless of when the tragedy actually occurred on the calendar. It is in a way a PTSD, a post-traumatic stress disorder response. Someone who experienced event trauma is impacted not just in the face of the threat, at the moment of the threat, but leaves a mark on the nervous system moving forward. The brain is a predicting device. 
That's what the brain does well. That's what it's really designed to do. And the job of the brain is to keep us alive and safe. Before there was AI, there was a brain. When, when faced with danger or some threat to the system, the brain takes a snapshot of all the sights, sounds, smells, and objects which are present at that moment because they serve as a signal of potential danger. The brain doesn't know which of those things is at the actual danger, whether it's the sight, whether it's the smell, whether it's the sound, whether it's the appearance, but somehow the brain has to take all of that into account, has to register all of that, has to remember all of that. And whenever one of those things appears again, is detected by the brain in the future. So that sets off a response of immediate danger. The alarm goes off in the brain and the nervous system. For some people, Shabbos and Yontif are triggers that can generate a PTSD response because of the associations of the trauma which they experience on that particular day. For Kla Yisrael, it's the date of Tisha B'av which triggers our PTSD, our national PTSD response. As we get closer and closer to Tisha B'av, from Shivasa Batam was moved closer and closer towards Tisha B'av, we become more and more cautious in terms of the fear of danger. We're nervous, we begin to refrain from dangerous and even joyous activities because our sympathetic nervous system becomes activated. It becomes so intense that the outset of Tisha B'av, we can't even put on towels and fill in like we're not wearing this morning. We become isolated as mourners because that's all we can do is just sit by ourselves and we can't connect with anybody else in the midst of, in the midst of trauma. This kina acknowledges and gives expression to our complex trauma, trauma which recurs again and again and again, and that's why, as we said, the author says that we don't make new, we don't observe or commemorate tragedies on other days. Everything ultimately is connected to the detachment which we experience at the time of Chorban from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and all the tragedies are traced back to it, and therefore they're always going to be observed on the day of Tisha B'Av itself. The next kina is the, one of the two which we, uh, which we sing together, and it contrasts the events and circumstances that we experience as we walked out of Mitzrayim with our experiences when we were forced out and marched from Yerushalayim. Contrast is a very powerful means to understand something. The more we see how things were when we left Mitzrayim and the greatness that we experienced at that time, the more powerful the contrast becomes, and the more deeply we appreciate, internalize how tragic the Churban is. Some commentators compare this, the presentation in the Skina with a side-by-side -side picture of a couple standing under the chuppah with all of the joy and the excitement that is part of the chasna, with a picture next to that of the same couple getting divorced. And it's obviously sad when a couple divorces, but the sadness deepens and is more potent when the uh, when the simultaneous, when simultaneously one recalls or looks at the picture of the chasana. And those, hopefully you remember from, uh, from year to year, the year of the song, but if not, it's not a complicated uh, tune. The next kina, which we say, is a kina lamedalid. Uh, tells another story. And this story took place during the era of the first base of Mikdash. The bloodthirsty uh, Babylonian general of Izradon killed close to a million people in Yushalayim. 
an unimaginable loss of life. And when he finally enters into the base of Mikdash, he sees blood on the floor, which was boiling. And Chazal would tell the story as follows. And it's there on the, uh, the source sheet, maybe the last of the, uh, the sources that you have. It's also Gemara and Git and Nun Zayin of the base. Amr B'chir Oven, Amr B'shu Ben Korcha. Sachli Zaki Nechad Me'anche Yushalayim. One of the elders of Yushalayim went ahead and recounted to me, the Bika Zoo in this area, Harag Nevuzradan Rav Tavachim, that Nevuzradan, the head execution of the head general, Masayim V'achas Asar Ribo, which is 2.1 million plus, Ubu Yushalayim, and that was even before he got to Yushalayim. And in Yushalayim, Harag Tishim Ribo Al Emen Achas. He killed 940,000 people on a single stone. So we're talking already 3 million people. And there was such a flow of blood that eventually it reached the blood of Zechariah, which is on the floor of the Beis Amikdash. And there was a fulfillment of the Pasuk in Oshea, that the bloods touch one another. So Nebuzaradan sees the blood of Zechariah, who is boiling and bubbling. Obviously, that's a strange sight to see blood on the floor, which is bubbling and boiling. Don't see that very often. Amar, so he turns to the people in the base of Mikdash and he says, my high. He says, what's going on over here? What's the story with this blood? Obviously, there's some backstory to this. What is it? Amar, they said, eh, nothing to see here. Dam It's just some korban blood which spilled on the floor. It happens when you slaughter a lot of animals that some of it ends up on the floor. Nothing to be concerned about. So Nevuzradon was uh, uh, doubted that. I see dami v'lo idmu. And he brought some blood from animals, from Corbin animals, and made a comparison between the boiling blood on the floor and the animal blood and said, this is not the same. Amrlu, and he is a man of no patience. And he said to them, if you tell me the backstory, good. But if you don't tell me, if you continue to lie to me, and you know what I'm capable of doing, I will comb your flesh with iron combs. Amrle, so they said, what do you want us to tell you? There was once, over 200 years ago, there was a Navi in our midst, there was a prophet in our midst. And he was rebuking us, he was calling upon us to repair our ways, to mend our ways, to do tshuva, to realign ourselves with God. And it happened to be, they leave out, that this was on a Yom Kippur, which fell on Shabbos in the base of Mikdash. So this is the place where the shmuz, where the drasha was being given, on Yom Kippur, on Shabbos. Kaminan and we had no patience to hear another Musa Shmuz. So they went ahead and they got up and they killed him. And it's been a long time and the blood continues to boil and bubble on the ground here and nothing we could do gets it to stop. Amr Lahu, Sun says, he becomes a tzaddik all of a sudden. He says, I'm going to come along and I'm going to figure out a way to appease this blood so it shouldn't continue to suffer and it doesn't have to continue to boil and bubble on the floor. Isis Sanhedrin Gedola of Sanhedrin Ketana. If Israel gathers together the Sanhedrin, the major court in the minor court, the minor Sanhedrins, Kotel Ilave, and he went ahead and killed them all on that space, Vlonach, and the blood doesn't come to rest. Bachurim Bubasulos, he brings young men and young women, Kotel Ilave, he went ahead and killed them on the same spot to see if that will appease the blood, Vlonach, but the blood doesn't stop boiling and bubbling. I see Tinoka Shobes Rabin pulls children out of school, Katal Ilave, and goes ahead and kills them as well, Vlonach, and the blood continues to boil and bubble. Amrle, to it, who's rather now, he doesn't, and he's exasperated at this point, doesn't know what to do. He says, Zachariah, Zachariah, 
Tovim Shabem Ibaditim. He says, listen, the best of your people, I've already killed. They're already all gone. I can't kill them again. Nechalach Davdinu Lekulu is really what's going to satisfy you if I kill out the entire Jewish nation. Is that what you need in order to, uh, to be appeased? And as Nivuzradon went ahead and said that to the blood, Nach, the blood stops boiling and bubbling. But he shied to hear a tshuva bedaite. And at that moment, after killing three million people, just uh, you know, in the area of Yushalayim and this, uh, the surrounding area, all of a sudden he gets the thought, I'm, maybe I should do some tshuva. Maybe I should repent. Maybe I've done something. I've made some mistakes in my life. Youthful indiscretions. Amar, he says, achaskach. If, if the loss of one life, the tragic loss of one innocent life, and this is what happens that the boil, the blood could boil for 200 years unappeased. Who governed the Katal Kohani Nishmasa? So himself, who's killed millions of people, Alachas Kama Oy Vavoy, am I in big trouble because of what I've done with all that the loss of life which I've caused? Arak, he went AWOL from the army. He sent a document describing how he wants his assets to be distributed amongst his family and friends and whatnot. And ultimately, he converts. I don't know who the basin was who converted him, but they went ahead and they converted him to, uh, to Judaism. Tana, in the Bryce relates, Naman Ger Toshavaya. Naman was a resident alien. Nuvuzradan Ger Tzatakaya. And Nuvuzradan was, was and is a righteous convert. And we all understand the tragic nature of the story. A Navi does his job of rebuking the Jewish people. He calls them to repent and realign with Hashem and the Torah and is brutally killed on Yom Kippur, which was Shabbos in the Beis HaMikdash. Seeing how 200 years later, his brutal murder was avenged can at least superficially be understood. But what interests me about the story is that Chazal include the fact that Nebuzaradan ultimately experienced remorse and regret over his actions. It is certainly an interesting footnote to the historical record. Why did Chazal feel it was so important to mention that, uh, that, uh, that Nebuzaradan ultimately converted and became a gerset. Towards the end of the Kina, we read, I said to myself, This is your sin, and this is its consequence. When tragedy occurs, and when trauma hits, the world makes no sense. When safety and security are lost and compromised, and our moral compass is disrupted, we struggle to navigate our way through the world. The drive for justice allows us to recalibrate our understanding of the world, and stabilize so that we could once again move forward. We could stop the descent and we could begin to move upwards. If the murder of Zechariah Hanavi went unanswered, the world would remain unjust and unfair and terribly unsettling. unsettling. Knowing that there's justice in the world provides a level of comfort. The same lesson emerges as we connect Zechariah and Vuzradun. Zechariah called upon Klal Yisrael to repent and do tshuva. It seems that his effort fell in deaf ears because their response was to murder him in the base of Mikdash. So all of his efforts to go ahead and get the Jewish people to repent, to generate repentance, to generate alignment with God, seemingly it was a waste and there was no manifestation to whatever, there was no kiyum to his words or his intent whatsoever. To inform and teach that nothing is wasted, Chazal let us know that 200 years later, Zechariah's message was heard and had impact. It was Zechariah's words which ultimately inspired, albeit indirectly, the conversion of Nevuzradan and his descendants. So the efforts of Zechariah to align people with God 
didn't have impact to the people he was speaking to directly, but ultimately it was manifest in Abu's Radan who decided he was going to convert and align himself with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Sometimes we invest time and effort into our children and we don't always see the positive outcome and we could become frustrated that efforts were a waste. This kina reminds us that our efforts are never a waste. Although we may not see the impact, the efforts will always bear fruit at some point in the future. The next kina that we recite is unique. So we already know that, we, that not all of the kinos revolve around Korban Beis HaMikdash. And we understand that historical tragedies such as the Crusades, Inquisitions, pogroms, and Holocaust, and terrorist acts are all traced back to the detachment from Hashem that was set in motion at the time of our Korban and when we were exiled from Eretz Yisrael. This kina, though, is not related to the Korban or any other massive loss of Jewish life. The next kina addresses an event that took place in Paris in 1242, when the church burned and destroyed wagon loads of sfarim. 1242 was centuries before the printing press, and the destruction of these sfarim was an irreplaceable loss. Sfarim were painstakingly handwritten, and it would take years to replace them, and even that could only occur if there remained an original copy that scribes could copy from. Why do we have a kina about sfarim? What does this have to do with Khurban or with Gullus or tragic loss of life? The answer is that it was a tragic and life-threatening blow to our Gullus existence. Following the Khurban, when there was no longer a place where we could interact with Hashem, with the Shekhinah, Chazal teach HaKash Baruch remains in the Dalit Amos of Halacha, in the four cubits of Halacha. In case of emergency, break glass. When all else fails, and we don't know how to connect with Hashem, we always have the Torah, which is a manifestation of Hashem's will, and that is a means by which we could connect with him. The destruction of these farm described and recounted in the Kina is another blow to our existence and puts us on the edge of losing our identity altogether. We have lost Nevi'im, who are tasked with keeping us connected to Hashem. We lost the Beis Amikdash, the place where we connect with Hashem. We are exiled from our land where Hashem is supposed to reside and is supposed to be available. We lost our great Tanaim, the Asar Haruge Malchus, which we read about, who served as the bearers of the Mesorah to keep us connected. Even after that loss, we retained with our lifeline, the Torah. If our Sfarim are destroyed and we cannot learn, that could be Chassashon, the final death blow for Kayiso. And that is why it is a tragedy that must be mentioned and commemorated on Tishabav. The next kina which we say is uh, the one which we say which commemorates the uh, the Holocaust. There is little doubt about the importance of including the Holocaust in the kinos. We can all see how this is another dark chapter in Jewish history, perhaps one of the darkest, because of the loss of Jewish life and it, represented an, and it represented another tragic exile which we had to endure. After having thriving communities in Europe for centuries, suddenly it was all lost. Art School Publishes has two kinos in their uh, kinos book, written to commemorate the Holocaust, and the Quran presents another two. We read together the one composed by the Bab of Rebbe Zatzal, himself a survivor who lost his wife, 
most of his children in almost his entire community in the uh, in the Holocaust. That in and of itself, that he could write a kina is beyond my comprehension. How could someone who experienced the horrors of the Holocaust firsthand and the personal loss of his community and family generate the presence of mind to write a kina? It's beyond what I'm able to fathom. The kina that the Rebbe wrote contains all of the themes that we have seen in the other kinos that commemorate the Chorban of the Vesamitish. There's tragic loss of life, the elderly and the young, men and women. There's horrific suffering. We read about the cries to Hashem for help, for help and salvation. They were seemingly ignored by Hashem. Scholars in great Hamid Chachamim were brutally murdered and shoals in Bate Medrash were destroyed. How much Jewish life was left behind and lost when we were either killed or forced to flee? The Rebbe declares towards the end of this kina, from the day that we're exiled from our homeland, we have not experienced such a catastrophe. And that's a very powerful thing to say, knowing about the Crusades and Inquisitions and pogroms which we've experienced. But the Rebbe says that this is one because of the, the sheer number of, uh, of loss of life in the number of communities which are impacted, this is something he felt was the worst thing which happened since the time of the Chorban itself. The last kina, Elitzio, is sung together, and sometimes you overlook the fact that it contains a list of the tragedies that we suffered at the time of Churban Beis HaMikdash. The Buchem Levavetz, the famous Ashkiach of the Mir, bemoaned the fact that people recite it although, as though it was a happy song. This is not happy at all. It is tragic and is clear from the opening lines of many of the standards how horrific the descriptions are of what we had to experience. And we should keep that in mind as we go ahead and we sing it together. For example, we'll read just the beginning of some of these paragraphs. We lament for the palace, the Beis Hamikdash, that was abandoned. We lament the exile of Hashem's servants. For the blood that was spilled. We lament for the honor, the dignity of the Jewish people that was removed. When the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. And for the smashing on the rock of her babies and her youth. And we lament for your name, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that has been disgraced. And the Kina finally concludes, And for the prayers that Yisrael cry out to you, Please, we plead with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, pay attention and listen to their words to redeem us.